This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Is biology not only destiny, but determinative of a male brain or a female brain? Could decades of research and assumptions about this be wrong? Or is denying a distinction between a male and female brain is merely a politically correct new construct? These questions are answered, debated, and explored with enthusiasm, scientific integrity, and humor by Gina Rippon in her fascinating new book, Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. Gina is a professor of cognitive neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Center at Aston University, and she joins us here in the studio during her visit from her home in England. Gina, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you very much for having me. So it's your contention that the science community has engendered bias and stereotypes by rewarding studies that show differences in the brain rather than sameness and has in fact ignored scientific evidence that brains are more of a mosaic than a binary organ. So before we explore your research and studies, let's discuss how decades of research went awry or was susceptible to cherry-picking. Right. Well, it started about 200 years ago when we first started looking. (laughs) Just then. Just then, yes. Really, scientists then were working backwards from the status quo. They looked at the um, situation, the place of women in society. They looked at the fact that they were uh, undereducated or less educated than men, that they had less financial security, etc. And they took that as a status quo and then said, we're, you know, emerging science of looking at the brain. We need to find explanations for this. Women are inferior, in inverted commas, but they certainly use those terms, uh, because their brains are inferior. So their focus was what I call a hunt the difference agenda. Mm. They wanted to show, to find I like measure. that term, hunt the difference, hunt the difference. meaning <laughs> justifying the status quo. Yes, yeah, so the difference was a given, and they spent their time looking for it. They never challenged the idea that there might not be a difference. So let's start with a basic one. Men's brains are larger. Are they physically, they're physically larger. Like, but so's a whale's and so's <laughs> an elephant. So wasn't some of the research starting with that? Like, if you have more volume, you must have more capacity? That was certainly, as is characteristic in this sort of research, the size matters issue um, <laughs> was at the forefront of the of the scientist's mind. And they thought uh, one of the things they found was remembering, of course, we couldn't look at living right. human brains. We were looking at, at, at uh, dead brains or damaged brains. So one of the early measures was filling skulls with bird seed and we- weighing the bird seed. And they found that on average, and that's quite an important distinction, men's brains were about five ounces 
heavier than women's. Mm. And they immediately thought, oh, that's the explanation. Women are inferior because they've got smaller brains. Right. And then the issue about the sperm whales and elephants having bigger brains was brought up. And generally, they're not known to be more intelligent than human males. So clearly, it wasn't just bigger brain means cleverer. So then they thought of all sorts of other metrics about maybe it was a ratio of uh, brain weight to body weight, and then that didn't work. And so there's a history of where you look at how these differences have been measured, mm. and you realise that a lot of the science was to do with working backwards and saying if a difference, if a measure didn't find a difference, there must be something wrong with the measure, rather than thinking well perhaps there isn't a difference. Mm. And you know one of the one of the things that dis- that surprised me, and. I think I've read Origin of Species, but that Darwin was sort of, you know, the man that we hold up to have been the beginning or an important um, scientific or scientist along the way, he too fell prey to this stereotyping. He he was one of the greatest scientists of all time. He was a dyed-in-the-wool misogynist. He had a very powerful belief that women were evolutionarily inferior to men um, and also had a belief that if you interfered with that uh, inferiority by perhaps educating women, then you would perhaps be diverting the path of evolution. So he had a very strong belief that this wasn't a wise move to try and suggest that women were as capable of being educated as as men. And, you know, you also refer to a series of books, you know, two probably that have the most common currency or men are from Mars and women are from Venus, or the female brain Mm. book that came out about 13, 12 or 13 years ago. Yet you very thoughtfully debunk what they're saying. So how do they get away with that? How does how does that gain the kind of currency and the kind of enthusiasm that it does when it's based on such faulty science? I think that's 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 a very good question and and for me that's an issue which possibly remains today, but I think being aware of it has alerted people to the problem. When brain imaging arrived in the 1990s, this was really the first time that people had been able to look at intact human brains while people were carrying out tasks. Mm -hmm. And they produced these fantastic images. And that's the basis of a lot of my work is producing wonderful visual ways of conveying what's going on. And they were very powerful. So it looked as though at last we could see, you know, window into into the brain making the invisible visible. But the so that it looked as though we were going to be able to revisit old issues about differences in the brain. Yeah. And so we've got these wonderful techniques. But the downside of those images were that they were um, well. There's a phrase they're called seductive. People thought this is you know this is the answer, and there was a whole wave of sort of self help books which came out on the back of those neuroscience images, which really said, oh, now we've got something which can give a sciencey basis to the statements we're making. And a lot of those were people who believed in single-sex education or who were um, relationship advisors, etc., and were very firmly of the belief that men were different from women. So they thought, oh, we've got these wonderful images and the scientists are producing images which suggest that men are different from women. So all we need to do is put these images in our books or on the covers of the books, probably without not too much explanation. Um, and that'll give us a big um, science push. And there was a whole wave of activity in the at the beginning of, of, of 
of this century, where if you put neuro in front of everything, it became really fashionable. Gospel. You could be neurophilosophy, neuro <laughs> anything. Neurophilosophy. That's right. Uh, neuro furniture design, all sorts of things. Um, and, and the whole thing, and that also came into these books, and I, I call them um, neuro trash uh, mm. as an indication of my feeling about them. But they are a very good example if you're trying to show to students that science can be mis misrepresented or misunderstood and the female brain that you mentioned is is held up as a classic example of somebody cherry picking neuroscience findings not really looking carefully at the findings they were using and but making big bold statements about mm-hmm. you know men use language more than uh, less than women and then finding that actually that research was referring to some songbird research but you know this wasn't <laughs> mentioned in the book. Um, so I think those kind <laughs> Is that of bit, true? It's, it's based on it, songbirds? It is true. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the references given, because sometimes to give credibility, you would quote research. A, a study. But if you didn't look at the research, you'd just read the statement, which mainly people who were reading those kind of books would do, you know, yeah. expecting that yeah. the person who'd written the book had, had actually had done read that. it. Yeah, had done that. Um, and so there is an evidence of, of that particular book. Uh, in fact, there was a review of, of Nature in Nature at the time, which said, you know, this is just full of misinformation. And yes, it's become very, very popular. You still find it in libraries. People still say, you know, the female brain explains why women are like this. And, and the Mars and Venus is another example. And I think the reason it was popular was because it was um, and remains a question, an issue that people are really, really interested in. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's to do with them and their lives. I do want you to know that I'm going to be reluctant to give up. I have cut my husband and men in general slack based on a passage in that book about some connective tissue between (laughs) two parts of the The brain brain that suggests men are not good at multitasking because they got more testosterone prenatally. Yes. So am I going to have to give that up? There's no excuse for this. I think there's no excuse. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid. good. That's right. Yes. Yes. I'm going to go. Not saying multitasking is necessarily a good thing, but that's another story. But yeah, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. We could have a whole conversation yeah, around that. Right. Yes, but blaming the brain—that's another way, as well as the hunt the difference agenda. It was always blame the brain. You yeah. Know, if you saw a gender gap, it was oh well, they got different brains, and I think that's really partly what I was interested in. Um, Because I I was interested in how brains got to be different. It wasn't necessarily male and female brains. Um, Right. I'm an autism researcher and there's a a phrase in the autism community. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Mm. And so in my work, I'd see huge variability in different populations. And I thought the variability within the population was much more interesting than the variability between different populations. So I thought, well, if I look at what we know in inverted commas, is a a well-established difference, the difference between male and female brains, what research supports that idea, um, how how well do we know that those differences link to male and and female differences in behaviour. And that's where the whole edifice, for me, started to unravel. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we really need to go back and look at this properly and unpick the stereotypes because the other part of the story is that those stereotypes have a very profound influence on our brains. Mm-hmm. So we get this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So let's go, let's break that down. Okay. So let's start with your theory about is there a difference in a male and a female brain that is justified by scientific evidence? 
I think that uh, the short answer is no, I don't think so. But that's not to say I don't think there are differences between male and female brains. There are certainly differences linked to the fact that we have different kinds of hormone activity. We have different roles to play in the reproductive process, etc. And the brains will support that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also physical differences in male and female bodies, which are related to a whole category of different activities, including hormones. So I'm not pushing those to one side and right. saying, you know, I'm I'm going to ignore rubbish. I'm not going to ignore those because it's inconvenient. I think there's there are differences there. I think, but we also need to say that if you look at the neuroscience findings since we've had brain imaging, we still and people will say, so what have you been spending our tax dollar on? Dollar on um, we still have not found anything which characteristically differentiates the brains from men from the brains from women. So there really isn't anything which could, I can't as a brain imager look at an image and say, oh, that's a man or another image and say, oh, that's a woman, you know, using language or something. And I couldn't take a whole array of people and say, I know what your brain's going to look like or your brain or your brain. So the differences are not of that kind. And I think that's quite important because people feel they're very profound and, and will have very very strong effects. And let's take two two of those that you say actually do make some difference because the, one of the terms that you use about research, are they significant differences? Mm -hmm. So let's take the very obvious. It's hard for me to fathom that the huge biological differences, let's just talk about a penis versus a vagina, mm -hmm. right? Or breasts versus no breasts don't become determinative or reflective of a correlating difference in the brain. So how high is the correlation or how significant is the difference that might be traced structurally to the biological differences between male and females? It's very low. Um, I mean, there is what's called the 3G model um, of biological sex differences, which is genes, gonad, genitals and gonads. Right. So, yes, there are um, clear-cut differences between males and females. I use the term clear-cut advisedly because one of the other findings in biology these days is that the nice two categories are probably not quite as clear-cut as we thought mm -hmm. and we might be thinking about biological sex on a spectrum as well. So even at that level, you know, the, there's a debate. There's a debate. Right. But certainly hormones are a key issue. Um, hormones, the exposure to testosterone of a fetus prenatally determines that that fetus will be male and that fetus will be born with male genitals and will be assigned sex as a boy, etc. So that that is a, a perfect accepted, you know, that that that's what it what happens. There is a, a, a strong theory based very strongly on animal research that uh, the testosterone that the female, the male fetus is exposed to also organizes the brain differently. So the idea is that that particular process, it, which determines the anatomical differences relevant to reproduction, also determines the differences in the brain, which it is claimed is the basis of different kind of temperaments, personalities, different skills, different mm -hmm. roles in society, etc. And do you buy that? I don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think there is strong evidence that, I mean, clearly 
testosterone, uh, hormones have a role to play. You know, the, it means drive to action. So hormones are a very important part. Literally, of our that's the yes, derivation that's, of the word. That, that's what it means. So they're clearly a very important part of our biology. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny them. But how significant they are, or how profound an influence they are, on the kind of gender gaps that I'm interested in, mm-hmm. in um, perhaps in, in mental health issues, perhaps in um, more everyday issues such as the representation of women in science, for example, or the different ways children are, are treated in schools. I don't think that hormones have as profound a driving as a f- effect as you might see in non-human animals on, a, on which a lot of these theories have been developed. Mm-hmm. So that really goes to um, two issues that I think would be interesting for us to talk more about. One is the role of the media in in this issue. And the other, the one of, one of the parts of the book that I was fascinated by is how you talk about the plasticity of the brain and how long the learning goes on and how reactive the brain is to cultural, social constructs. Mm-hmm. So let's let's hear more about that. Okay. So the role of the media, I think, is very important because I think the whole popularization issue and the belief in gender stereotypes and the continued belief in gender stereotypes and the confirmation bias we have where we, we hear something which... You know, confirms what we think is true. All of those are um, the result of media influences, and I always because it's a better story. It's a better story. I always know if you're looking at some obscure neuroscience journal and it flags up that there's perhaps some tiny sex difference um, being found somewhere. Um, and it's quite an abstruse article, and it may actually have been done on, on non-human animals anyway, and there's lots of findings and similarities as opposed to differences. You can bet your bottom dollar that in 10 days to two weeks, there'll be a headline, headline. somewhere, at last the truth. And it's always trumpeted like that proof at last that men and women are different. So they're really playing into this belief that we want to find these differences because I guess the headline, guess what, men and women aren't that different, isn't as interesting. (laughs) And do you think, you know, as I was thinking about the role of the media, is that a way of playing to what people want to hear? Do people buy into it because it provides excuses? Like we were joking about my giving my husband slack because, well, of course he yeah. can't multitask. His brain's not wired that yeah. way. Which do you think is is causing the media to play on that? I think I think a lot of it is to do with people, what people want to hear. Yeah, um, they like to have their beliefs confirmed, mm-hmm. and if it you know if it confirms something which affects them particularly, that's even more popular. So I right. think that's that's part of it. It's a better story. Um and I and and I think they people hear what they want to hear and the media give them that. And of course the other aspect now is social media and that's what I call the gender bombardment, where not only are they reporting mm. um, you know, neuroscientists have found differences, but marketing and video games and social media are also emphasizing those differences and making them important. So those two going together is why I think we get these at last the truth 
type headlines. You know, Gina, you talking about social media reminds me there's an example uh, that you had that really goes under our conversation of ple- of uh, plasticity that I found frightening was the story about a like robot or chatbot. <laughs> a chatbot yes. on Twitter. Yes, Tay. Tay, talk about that. I mean, that was pretty... Yes, I, I use that as a, a metaphor, really, because one of the things I'm saying is that we really need to realise that we've got these amazingly flexible plastic brains, which comes back to the other question of neuroplasticity. And... But the other thing we need to be aware is that the world has a profound influence on on, on, mm. on these brains. And the story that I came across about Tay the chatbot was Microsoft launched this conversation program and they said, we're going to demonstrate how a conversation generating, rule generating chatbot can interact with people in the outside world, pick up the rules of conversation and become almost human-like in, in conversation. So like a, a self-organizing mm-hmm. system. So they launched Tay with a big, um, you know, hoo-ha and um, said that Twitter users could interact with Tay and they would demonstrate how the things that Twitter users were saying to Tay were driving her, which is interesting. Um, oh, right, agenda, of course. <laughs> um, drive her, her learning experiences. And what happened was probably predictably, uh, they had to shut her down uh, after 16 hours because Twitter had done nothing but feed racist, sexist file language to this chatbot who dutifully was picking up all the rules from the information, the language they were hearing, she was hearing, um, became, I think the phrase was a sexist, racist arsehole. And they had to shut her down after 16 hours. And I thought that was a a really powerful metaphor about what the world is could could do to our brains. Yeah, and it also, which is not quite on our topic, but also goes to the question of how social media is creating the partisanship, the divisions, the the hatred that we're seeing. So reading that, I thought, wow, it's 16 hours. Mm, yes. This this bot was transformed from one ilk yes. to another ilk. Yes, I think she launched. She was launched with "Hello, everybody. This is Tay." You know, really cheerful, innocent, chatty, chatty uh, female voice that was interacting, and then became, you know, a dreadful sort of um, information was coming out because she was generating, listening to what the conversations were generating the rules about women um, and it's a bit racist about the Holocaust, all sorts of vile information that, of course, the Twitter users, yeah, not necessarily characteristic of Twitter users, but they clearly... It's an, it's an element. Yes. And, it, you know, as you think about this, does, does the work that you've done and the topics that the book covers make the notion of nature versus nurture sort of an outdated construct? I hope so. I hope so, because mm-hmm. I, I think it is. I think it's past its sell-by date. And the idea that we've <laughs> we've learned how much the world affects our brain means that brains in the world are very much entangled. I think trying to separate out one from the other is actually not a useful exercise. I think we need to acknowledge the fact that the brains we've got 
a reflection of the experiences that their owners have mm-hmm. had. And understanding that means that we need to look very carefully at the world in which those brains are operating. And if it's full of gender stereotypes or, or, or negative attitudes, that will actually change the brain. So it's kind of closing the link between it's either society's rules mm-hmm. or the brain's unfolding biological template, which determine who and, and what who we are and what we think, and realizing that those two interact throughout our lives. So before we go to, you know, I think you have a couple of elements that help us understand it even more and what we can do, how we can sort of enlarge our thinking to respond differently. But let's let's take two things uh, for a minute. One is, I wonder if the transgender community um, would have issue with your um, research and conclusions because a a piece of the transgender conversation is a body in the wrong box, meaning the box is a brain. So how would you respond to, well, are there criticisms from the trans transgender community? And if so, how would you respond to that? Yes, there are criticisms. Um, I mean, I think one of the issues is that, as, as you characterize it, the way in which some individuals describe their experience is that they feel that they have a female brain in a male body or a male brain in a female body. And then if I come along and say, actually, there is no such thing as a female brain. And that term itself, we talked a bit about language and significant, for example, as a term. There is a suggestion that there's a female type of brain, but people don't hear that. They think female brain means a brain from a woman. Um, and that's what they got firmly in their head. And they say, well, neuroscience has proved that there is a, a, a brain from a woman which works differently and they can demonstrate that. And if I come along and say, we look at the research and actually that's not the case, there is no template uh, against which I could match somebody's brain who wishes to transition, for example, and say, yes, indeed, your brain, although you're uh, gender assigned as a male at birth, when I look at your brain, yes, it's much more like a female. I can't say that because we don't have that template. And it's getting people to understand that their brain isn't necessarily one type or another. Everybody's brain is unique. And uh, and I think that'd be quite a positive message. Mm-hmm. message I love your every- term mosaic. Yes, that's, that's in fact a term that um, Daphne Joel, who I'm talking to tonight. Her book comes out today, in fact. Mm. It's called The Mosaic Brain. Um, it's really, I think that's a positive message for people, that, that you're a unique individual and your brain has particular characteristics which are a reflection both of your biology and, and, and your experience. And those characteristics will give you sets of skills which will make you unique mm-hmm. as opposed to just a, a member of two Groups. So, Gina, one of the things that you talk about quite a bit in the book is how the social cultural construct is forcing a woman's brain to be more female-like because of that's that's what the expectation is, yes. and, and the brain is responding, responding, yeah. responding. So, as part of what might be a interesting outcome in thinking about the transgender community is if society didn't so um, set their expectations about a person based on their body, I wonder if a transgender person would feel less constrained by the distinction between 
they're feeling more female and having a male body. Yes, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. it. It goes right back to the kind of 200 years ago when there was this inextricable link between, inevitable link between your biological sex and your social gender. And one determined the other and the link couldn't be broken. And this inevitability meant that if you were born with a particular kind of biology, that's what your gender should be. If you could challenge that link mm-hmm. and say, yes, there's biological sexual characteristics linked with your reproductive capacities, but gender is something else again. And we used to only have the same word. I mean, sex meant both biological sex and social gender. Interestingly, that's now flipped. So gender means both. So we talk about you know gender pay gaps, for example. So, right. So that, that word, but it was, they were so... The, the assumption was that they were so inextricably linked that you only needed the one word, and, and it used to be sex and now it's gender. But I think if you can say, actually, we need to disentangle that, and gender is something about how you feel, the group you feel you belong to, um, you know, the associations you want to have, the choices you want to make, and it could be on a spectrum. It doesn't have to be tied mm-hmm. to two very firmly defined categories, which in themselves we now know are not that firmly defined. So I think that would that could help this feeling of disconnect, which I think is mm-hmm. a fundamental aspect of, of being transgender. And and so this conversation about gender on a spectrum, you know, it feels like, and I, w- I was reminded of that reading the book, that there's been a lot of research over the years that have justified whatever whatever the popular thinking was then, you know, what you call justifying the status quo. So playing devil's advocate, I might say, well, it's politically correct now to say that gender's on a spectrum and there really isn't a difference and everybody moves along a continuum. What what would be your justification or how would you respond to somebody who's who disagreed with your conclusion? Or how susceptible do you think the work you're doing might be to what's now Being considered fashionable. politically correct? Yeah, I think there's, well, two things you'd say. If we were living in a world um, where males and females, defined at some point by their biological sex, if you like, were living hugely contentedly and there wasn't huge differences in mental health problems such as mm. depression and eating disorders and yeah. um, and self-injury in women or um, su- suicide statistics in young men. If, if we were living there, you'd say that actually that this seems to be satisfactory. Mm-hmm. So we're good. Yeah. So, good. so um, that's fine. Uh, that's not the case. So I think in order to try and address that problem, you'd mm-hmm. say, well, w- what's going on here? And and could it be that we're trying to constrain individuals into just two categories, which don't in any way reflect themselves, their real lives? And that's part of the problem. So we could look at that. And I, I think that's that's an issue that... Um, People say it feels like it's fashionable because, for example, the number of children who are declaring themselves transgender or who feel that they're not or that they're invariant with the, the, the biological sex they were assigned at birth. And people say it's like a fashion and um, very young children are being you know, given medical interventions and puberty mm-hmm. blocking hormones, etc., and I think it's really the case, it comes back to this idea in the 21st century that there is a much more profound gender bombardment. So I think there's a much bigger emphasis now on what 
being very prescriptive list of what boys and girls should be like. Very clear. This is, you know, these are what the superheroes are like and these are what girls are like. And so if an individual looks at that list and thinks none of the above. Right. So they think there must be something wrong with them. And because they still have this belief that it's founded in their biology, they think, you know, if they change their biology, it'll work better. It'll work because they will be at one with this list. And there's certainly evidence that that's not a a wholly successful solution to the problem. Mm. But what I think research could show is that actually there isn't a problem in the first place. It, it, you know, right. what, what it needs to say is let's dissolve this idea of this binary choice between male, female, uh, masculine, feminine, and actually acknowledge that we're much more on a, a unidimensional spectrum than we realize. Which is why people are characterized, some people are characterizing you as a sex denier. Is that <laughs> That's right? right? Yes. <laughs> yes. With the same tone of voice yeah, as climate change exactly, deniers. Exactly. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sex difference denier is certainly one of the probably politest epithets that's come my way. And I'm not. I mean, I, I would certainly acknowledge I'm, you know, I'm a lifelong, um, working lifelong biologist. And I really would acknowledge that there are differences that we need to understand, again, with respect to mental health issues, mm. if we think they're biologically based, physical health illnesses, differences in rates of Alzheimer's in women and Parkinson's in men. There, there's some kind of uh, brain processes there which are deficient, which appear to be based on whether you're male or female. So mm-hmm. understanding that's really important. So I'm not a sex difference denier, certainly. All right, good. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to... Uh, spend a little bit of time now on how you think we can course correct on reinforming brains to justify stereotypes. So your one of your chapters, which I love the title, Good Girls Don't, and you use a quote, I'm not going to say uh, the person's name right, Sajani. Reshma Sojani, yes. And the quote is, we're raising our girls to be perfect and our boys to be brave. Mm. Are we still doing that? I think we definitely are. And I think, I I love that quote when I came across it because it immediately spoke to what I think is happening. Yeah. I mean, I do quite a lot of work in secondary schools um, and I've also got involved in primary schools. And probably quite unconsciously, um, stereotypes are really active there. Uh, Even in the case in primary schools, uh, one of the uh, BBC programs I was involved in went into a class of seven-year-olds and had a look at all the gender stereotyping in their classroom and how their teacher interacted with them in the games they played. And they had a blue coat, a blue cupboard for boys' coats and a pink cupboard for girls' coats. And nobody knew why. Um, They just did. But all of these and people say, I, I have a rant, as you know, about gender reveal parties. Oh, yeah. Well, I do, too. And I'm not I, I'm not even knowledgeable about all the stuff you're talking about. And, I, yeah. <laughs> and I think people say, oh, well, you, do you mean gender reveal parties are going to change the brain? And I'm saying, no, I think gender reveal parties reveal how profoundly embedded this distinction is and how important, how, how much important. important people attribute to it. And I think it's that which is... Um, gendering, gendering yeah. the brain, and this is why the idea that we raise our girls to be uh, boys to be brave and our girls to be perfect is important. And if you look at education processes, very often the emphasis on girls are they are quiet, they sit still, and one of the things our brains are doing for us is helping generate our identity and 
rewarding the behaviour that gets rewarded to make sure that we do more of it um, and teaching us to avoid the behaviour which is not acceptable mm -hmm. um, so that we don't do any more of it. And I think that's where we, where I, in, in the chapter you, you, you were talking about, I talk about a brain process, which I believe is the foundation of this, where we have what I call an inner limiter. You know, you could um, characterize it as our inner critic, if you like. So there are brain processes which inhibit behavior, which might lead to us making mistakes or um, having negative experiences. And you can demonstrate that at a whole range of levels. And I think that could well be what's happening to uh, how the brain gets to be gendered. It, it's uh, different forms of behaviour are rewarded for boys and girls. They're given different sorts of praise in school. And the brain will pick up those rules because that's what the brain is for. It's, it's to help us negotiate the social... Right you know, maze that we're in. And therefore, uh, it will say, well, if you're a girl, this is what girls look like. It's really important that you belong to the right kind of in-group. So this is how girls behave and this is how you should behave. And that's what leads to these kind of differences. So let me ask a question that will maybe undermine um, the, the theory. Are women more susceptible to that conforming behavior. In other words, is there sort of an oxymoronic mm. conclusion there? Because are, if men, are e either men don't need to be susceptible to it because they are generally who the world expects them to be, but women are more vulnerable to mm. not or wanting to be accepted. So does that actually indicate that there is a female element to the brain? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. I mean, I, and I think this is this is why I was a bit uneasy about the, the subtitle, which wasn't my choice, about shattering the myth of the female brain. Yeah. I said, well, actually, I could actually be showing that there is such a thing as a female, in inverted commas, brain, but it may come from a different source to what people have always believed. Mm -hmm. But I think... There may be evidence, and I was very intrigued by this, that girls are more susceptible to socialization. And one of the studies yeah, I quoted was um, girls who had um, who had a particular hormonal problem, which meant they'd been exposed to higher levels of testosterone prenatally than they normally would be. And they've been studied very intensively since this condition was was discovered because it, it looked as though this was the answer to the, the brain organization hormone issue. So you've got a female or brain of a female um, fetus, which has been exposed to the wrong in inverted commas hormones. So do they behave differently? Mm -hmm. And certainly there's some evidence that they have some less responsiveness to social pressures. And there's, I mean, I think the research in itself is quite interesting, and evidence that there's they're more tomboyish, you know, and I think actually the idea that there is such a thing as a tomboy or there's even a tomboy index measure suggests that we are slightly um, understanding <laughs> that. <laughs> well, it, it's actually begging the question some way. If you're if you've already got a tomboy index, you've already got an idea that there is such not a thing. merely a female brain. That's right. But the idea there's 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 how a girl should be, and if she's not like that, she must be a tomboy. But I think one of the things they've noticed is that they seem to be less susceptible to what we call the the modelling or the labelling issues with toys, for example, so that to demonstrate that the power of 
calling something for girls or for boys or watching males or females, girls or boys play with those toys has, is that you could do it with neutral objects. So you could take something like a garlic press or a melon baller and paint it pink and or paint it blue and give it to children and say, which, to- which, you know, which of these do you think a girl would like to play with and which do you think a boy would like to play with? And the answer generally is the girls pick the pink ones and the boys pick the blue ones and say, because they already have bought into the idea that pink and blue is is a signal right. that they should be responding to. So I think that aspect is is really demonstrating that possibly girls are more susceptible. They seem to be respond more to different labels and different models. Whether or not this is a biological basis, that they're born more to be socialised, which would fit in with some of the evolutionary theories and networking, etc. Or whether it's something that girls are more socialised, girls... Um, mothers interact more with girls socially in terms of language and eye contact than with boys. So we don't know if we're it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms right. of what society is doing, or maybe girls are born to be more social and therefore are um, much more susceptible to socialisation pressures, which if they include, um, which is why I called it good girls don't, things that they shouldn't do, uh, roles they can't play, places they're not expected to um, do well in. This may be why you get the kind of gender gaps um, that we're looking at. So would it be fair to say that your conclusion is that whatever small differences exist neurologically between gender men and gender women or boys or girls mm-hmm. gets exacerbated because of the way we culturally operate and therefore throws it into a more exaggerated exaggerated yeah. conclusion than is scientifically true yes i think what if we if again working backwards in the status quo we can say it's clear that males behave differently and females behave differently or achieve differently that in itself, if we look at some of the data, we may need to revisit. But if you've got that difference, then you're looking back for the research, for the evidence. And you could say, well, clearly male and female brains must be different because men and women behave differently. And this must be a biological unfolding of a mm-hmm. biological process. But you could say, supposing those brains have got to be different because they've been treated differently by the world that they in the first place. In the first place, so we know that the experiences you have, hence the taxi driver studies, will change the brain. Similarly, if you don't have those experiences, your brain won't change in that way. But we also know that stereotypes, uh, attitudes—if you're given a task to do in a positive way, or given exactly the same task in a negative way—not only do you make more mistakes in the negatively presented task, but your brain works differently. So we already know that Hmm. something, an attitude, which is just how a question is expressed or what you believe... It will change the brain. So this is is why I'm saying, you know, that's the the kind of missing link. Um, But it means that the differences we see might be much more to do, or we should understand that the differences we see might be much more to do with the kind of cultural pressures And are there gender-neutral cultures that have been studied to see if, in fact, there's a less nuanced gender behavior that results from that? Not so much gender-neutral. Interestingly, it's more where the... Or matriarchal. Yes, it's, it's almost where the roles are reversed. And you could say, well, that's a really 
strong argument for there being the need for the roles. Um, although you could say the fact that they can be reversed in different cultures suggests it's not a kind of biological imperative. Exactly. But it's still interestingly that th- there's a suggestion that there are different kinds of roles and they could just be based on physical needs. So less developed countries where, where uh, cultures where physical strength is important and if males on average are physically stronger than females and that is an important part of that society, then males who have that necessary physical strength will be in charge. Will be in charge. What we're nearly saying, we, we are now in the 21st century and maybe those kind of issues need to be revisited. We're not doing hunting and gathering. <laughs> hunting and gathering again. And also, again, even in that case, there are overlaps. It's not as though all of the men are stronger than all of the women. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another aspect. But there's a, a great book, if I can talk, there's, there's a science fiction book by Marge Piercy called Woman on the Edge of Time. Mm. And part of that is a culture where gender has become irrelevant. Nobody knows who's male or female. Say the title of that book again. Woman on the Edge of Time. Mm. And I'm interested in it because a lot of people She's say... She's a great so, writer. I know. I've not read that book, it's though. It's 19... I think it's way back in the 1980s. I wonder if it's still in print. I'll it figure is, that out. Oh, good. Is. Yes. I'm going to read it. She... It's it's science fiction and it's set it's a set in the future and it's a complicated story. But the the culture itself, gender has become irrelevant, and you the roles you play are because of the strengths you have. What's really wouldn't inter- that be nice? Did yeah. that go well in her book? Well, it's, she, it's, she when she talks <laughs> I'm about I'm just curious. It, yeah, no, what's interesting actually is that this was in the 1980s, so it sort of coincided with the, the second wave of feminism. And, yeah. This is the idea that, you know, the only way past this is to acknowledge that society makes you who you are and if your society has different expectations. But what she did was that the reproduction aspect, children were no longer produced by women. There was a technological advance, which meant that so there were... So men could babies. do it. Well, they neither. There were their Babies were produced almost not chemically, but they were actually sort of part of a manufacturing process involving males and females aspects. But but the actual process of bearing and producing the children was technological. And I thought that was quite interesting because people say, how are we going to get past the problems we've got? You know, shall we raise all our children gender neutral? And my solution is always we need to raise them gender irrelevant so that gender right. doesn't isn't given the emphasis. Isn't informing. So that really goes to... Um, um, my last question, and that is, what do you hope your book will achieve? Or what would what would feel like success for you? As the you know, the book's been very well received. There's a lot of enthusiasm about it. So, what does what what do you hope will happen with it? I think people realizing that a focus on gender stereotypes is not just a kind of being PC. You know, people roll mm-hmm. their eyes and what does it matter what toys they have and whether there's yeah. toy shops full of pink or blue. Like get over yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think it's really saying, actually, this is this is important. Mm. Um, I mean, there's, there's books which talk about stereotypes as toxic. Um, and, you know, maybe people may feel that's overstating the case. But then I'll say, well, do look at, you know, the, the statistics of suicide in young men and, and self-harm in young women. And there is something about what we expect our children to be like mm-hmm. if you focus at, at you know, the beginning of the journey um, that's not serving them well. And being aware of that and also being aware that it's something we can do something about. Yeah. Um, looking at schools, actually looking at themselves and saying, we make profound differences to children of three and four 
And if we really focused on not doing that, then you know, the future would unroll in a much more positive way. Yeah. So giving people a much more positive outlook that this is something they could do something about. It is still a brain-based, brain-based, can't say it again, brain-based process, but um, that doesn't matter. Our brains are flexible. And what we may be doing is actually constraining our brains. So if it's a culture, we mm. relax a bit, our brains may actually achieve much more than they currently can. And... Uh, and I think in reading the book, that that was one of my big takeaways. So I'm always interested in something where you can be proactive, right, not reactive. Mm-hmm. And the proactivity, I'm always interested in early childhood brain development around mm-hmm. literacy and reading and all of that. But in the book where you talk about the speed with which these brains are developing at these young ages and thinking about these gender expectations and if we could, as you say, neutralize them, mm-hmm. you know, you can imagine a very different way of these little five-year-olds behaving. Yes. Well, five-year-olds, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, looking at the various stages of social awareness that babies go through right from the moment of birth, yeah, you can see that by the age of two, three, they're already making Informed. social choices. And being aware of that, I think, is really important. Um, but not trying to, you know, force boys to want to go to princess parties or that kind of thing, but actually making sure that children aren't constrained in any way. They're not, you know, don't call somebody um, uh, a, sissy. a sissy. Yeah. Um, or, you know, man up, for example, or, you know, good girls don't do that. You know, yeah. be aware of, of the implications of that. Um, and if if that has an effect, as well as banning gender reveal parties, um. <laughs> yeah, we'll both be happy with that, <laughs> that one. That would be great. Well, we've been talking with Gina Rippin, and she's the author of a absolutely fascinating new book, Gender and the Brain. And Gina and I were talking a little bit before the interview, and I think this is true. You can read your book, Gina, in two ways. You can read it. Uh, as a scientist and delve deeply into your all, all the scientific information, or you can read it as a book that helps you understand socially and culturally what we're doing is actually changing our brains, not that our brains <laughs> were what what they we thought they were supposed to be. Yes, that's a great way of characterizing the book. Thank you very much. Yes, that's that's really what I was hoping. And I'm 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 a brain enthusiast, as you can probably tell. You're making I'm, me one. <laughs> and I'm really hoping people realize how amazing our brains are, especially baby brains, but can see, you know, what we could do with them, yeah. which we're not currently. <laughs> well, Gina, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Great success, you know, while you're traveling thank around you very much. Thank you. Uh, the States and Uh, Thank you for doing the book. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking with Gina Rippin, author of the fascinating new book, Gender and Our Brains. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.